fact, I'm a bit of a bore. If I tell a joke, you've probably heard it before. But I have a talent, a wonderful thing. Cause everyone listens when I start to sing. I'm so grateful and proud. All I want. Lee Martell, a singer at one of Dublin's cabaret spots, the talk of the town. Lee Martell doesn't tell funny stories, but cabaret is a very special area for the stand-up comic, drawing a very special type of audience. For seven years now, one stand-up comic has made this world his own. He's one of the half-dozen professional comedians on the cabaret circuit. His name is Syl Fox. You'll find him described in the entertainment columns as the fast-talking man of a 100,000 laughs. He's one of the busiest comics working in cabaret in the Dublin area. Yet Hal Roach, a comic who now spends much of his time abroad, believes that in Ireland there's a great scarcity of comic talent. Hal Roach, you're actually searching for a comic at the moment. Yes, I am. Uh, Because I can't afford myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am, because I'm I'm worried about the future of of comedy in Ireland and I think it's about time uh, we started looking for new talent in that area. You know, we have very few... The old cliche now holds true. There's only a few of us left, as it were. And uh, I despair a little bit because, uh, you know, the world needs to laugh today more than any time in its history. All uh, countries and cities need their comedians today and we must give every possible... uh, What's the word? Uh, You know... uh, Encouragement. Encouragement and help to the would-be comedians. When I say would-be comedians, you can't make a comedian. Comedians are born. You can guide and help them uh, with whatever experience perhaps you might have. Uh, but uh, he has to have the initial, you know, dominant, uh, inherent thing within him. If, if he says he wants to be a comedian, then he is. It's as simple as that. Why this dearth of comics? Where are they? I don't know. Well, you see, again, they're, they're probably here. I know they're here. I mean, there are many great comedians in Ireland, but where can, they get, who, where can we find them? What, what media can we use to discover them? Television or radio doesn't want you, perhaps, until you're, well, proficient. But, I mean, I had a, a good in my younger days. At least I had the fit-up shows in Ireland where you could learn your trade. I mean, I was bill poster, drummer, comedian, actor. And I, got all, I went through all the sort of uh, schools of, of the fit-ups, and it was a great training. It was a great, you know, grounding for your, for your profession. But today, where, wh- how, where do you start? In the search for comic talent, one young amateur comedian got his break in a competition on The Late Late Show, and he won it, although he was given only two minutes to prove just how funny he can be. When did Andrew McQuillan first decide he wanted to be a comic? My father was very funny, there's no doubt. He was self-employed, he was very funny, and uh, I used to get a great kick. I idolised my father. And uh, many years ago, I must have been only, what... I'm 40, 40 now, uh, I'd say about 12. I first played the part of Jamesy in the pawn shop, and that was uh, in the Archbishop Bourne Hall. And uh, seeing people laugh made me feel very good. So from there we entered into more variety shows and they were a monthly business which we always filled the uh, Archbishop Bourne Hall. And uh, it came terrific. 
So as time went on, we started into pantomime. And that meant making all our own stuff. Costumes, work, getting everything ready, doing the stage. And uh, we do that for... We did that for about 20 years. Then we'd go off and we'd go around the country. And for any of the... Uh, Charities are underprivileged. We do all that. Did um, you always try to play comedy? Oh yeah, parts? look. Well, no. I like uh, my main uh, liking was comedy. I loved comedy because my brothers and my sisters we all had different parts to play. My father played the dame. My mother was the singer. I had a brother that he'd play demon king. I had another brother uh, a singer. My sister she'd play a uh, uh, principal girl. Then there was another uh, principal boy. And we all had our own parts, which was terrific. But comedy, I love. Well, when did you start to play on your own as oh. a solo performer? How did that come about? Well, a good few years ago. I'll tell you how it did come about. At parties, you'd always be asked up, will, will you do this and will you do that? Which uh, I'd get up and I'd do it. But I love it because, I mean, to see people laugh, I think it's everything. I think it's lovely. This contest that you won, though, this national contest... Yes. Um, how did that come about? Well, I'll tell you. I, have, I must tell the truth, of course. Absolutely. I was at the Late Late Show, right? And I approached Gay at the end. And uh, I asked him, did he give any chance to a uh, local talent? So he said to me, well, he said, uh, what's your interest? Well, I said, my interest is uh, I do a bit of comedy work, uh, amateur. And I said, I- I'd love to get on. Well, he said, you know, you could die a death. Well, I said, I'm self-employed and I do that sometimes. Well, he said, will you write in? So I never wrote in. And on his morning uh, programme, he had mentioned with the lad that he was speaking to and also anyone else that could do a turn, get in touch. So it was a friend of mine heard the programme and I uh, I rang and I was asking about for audition which I got, and I came on the show that night. And you, you had to do it all in two minutes? In two minutes. You're like, the lad told me, the, the interviewer told me, which I nearly passed out, absolutely. Now it's to see, we go down here, you have to be funny in two minutes. He said, you have to make me go hysterical into laughter. Well, do you know what? I got such a fright that my mouth wouldn't work. I got terribly nervous. But uh, I got the audition, I got through the audition, and uh, it was great then. But two minutes is not long. You've won it now. Yes. Uh, and as you say, you're, you're 40 years of age. Um, in other words, if you wanted to turn professional now, you would be a late starter, wouldn't you? Where would I go? What would I do? Have you looked at the, the cabaret scene? Yes, I have looked at the cabaret scene. And what do you think? Uh, not for, for you? Not for me, no. No, uh like, they work hard, the artists work hard and all like that, but I don't like it because there's a a, a drink element. Like, you know, I I, I think uh, for comedy in any way, like to come out where there's drink involved, uh, it wouldn't be for me because an audience and stage, that's it. That's what I've been trained for. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together, please, for Ireland's number one comic, the great Sil Fox. <laughs> If you're Irish, come into Slattery's 
For there's a welcome here for you and you and you. And if your name is Timothy or Pat, as long as you come from Ireland, there's a welcome on the mountain. And if you come from the mountains of Mourne, Killarney's lake's so blue. We sing you a song and we make a fuss. Whoever you are, you're one of us. If you're Irish, this is the place for you. All together, guys. Thank you, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're very welcome to the show here tonight. I want to say hi, you gang. Well, all the gang, say hi, you still. Ready? Wait, wait. You just. Hi, you gang. Are you enjoying yourself? Yeah. Just said no. That's your fault. That's your fault. Ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause for tonight. We have a special show and a special group on stage tonight. And there they are, the Sex Pistols. <laughs> you look like more like water pistols. <laughs> I'm not going to slag the man tonight because they do a tremendous lot of work for hospitals. They make people sick. I was just looking at our guitarist there, Barry, on our right-hand side. He's very good to his wife. <laughs> he never goes home. <sighs> our drummer is a window cleaner by day. He's miserable. <laughs> Open the ladder he was. Open the ladder, clean the windows, let tempers fall out of his pocket. He's down so fast, I hit him on the head. <laughs> and our other guitarist, there he is, Sonny Knowles' father. The women love him. They really do. Six of them chased him last Sunday, didn't they? <laughs> he robbed the handbags. <laughs> but they're all going to do something very good tonight. First of all, our guitarist, our rhythm guitarist, is going to take off his trousers and sing a little song entitled... That's his wife. <laughs> He's going to sing a little song entitled, I Who Have Nothing. <laughs> our drummer will take off his trousers and sing a little song entitled, Little Things Mean A Lot. And a really sexy guitarist, he's going to set fire to his trousers, sing a song entitled, Goodness Gracious, Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> <laughs> we have a compare with us tonight, Martin Phelan. There you are, Martin. Hope your suit comes back into fashion. <laughs> and... <laughs> he's just miserable. Do you know why we're here tonight, really? We're not here for the show at all. We're here for the grand opening of Martin Phelan's wallet. <laughs> He wouldn't buy around the drinks, that fella. That's true. We all, we all buy drinks, don't we? Huh? No, we do. We all buy around. The case of Martin Fielding's round to buy around the drinks. You know what he done? <laughs> Ran out into the toilet. <laughs> I wouldn't let him in. Sil Fox. His material always includes those slighting references to the band. And that time to the fact that he was in Carlo recently. Now, the Carlo visit is an opportunity for a topical twist to gags the audience may have heard before. But the fact that they've happened on the way to Carlo makes them sound almost new. You're guzzling the gag a lad, you know that. What are you drinking there? What is it? A baby sham. Surely a baby sham. <laughs> Martin, could you get this girl a baby sham for me, if you can? Send her out to her and I'll give you my money. Take her down my fee. And I'll give you the rest when I'm finished. <laughs> we had a chance over the holidays to visit Carlo. <laughs> Fabulous down there it was. And we were all driving down. No, I was driving down the old car. Everyone knows the car I drive. You know, it's an Irish car. 
to Jemison's hand. <laughs> I was driving down long, there's a woman at the wheel of another car and she's knitting at the wheel, knitting. And the police on the motorbike, you know, he comes up and he shouts in the says, he pull over. No, she has a cardigan. <laughs> Drive along and a big jaguar comes the other way, and now one shouts out the window to me, she, she pig! Pig! I said, Bye, you old bags. And with that, I ran over a pig. <laughs> you see, a big sign down there in Carlton, very hard to get accommodation down, a big sign that said accommodation. And I went up and knocked at the door. This big stout woman like myself came out. <laughs> I thought it was perfect, Mrs. I said, she, what you want? I said, miss, I'd like to stay here. She, she stayed there and she shut the door. <laughs> she, come here, buy a money joke. And she, what you want? I said, well, how much is bed and breakfast? She, it's only a pound if you make your own bed. Well, I gave her the pound and she gave me the hammer and the knife. <laughs> I said, missus, I, that place in there is full of rats. She, she, I left a gal in the path and she, she, well, don't you throw it down the hole? I said, I did. He came out and motorbiked. <laughs> you tell Carlo jokes to a Dublin audience, but what sort of a joke would you tell to a Carlo audience? Would you tell those stories? Uh, I probably would, yeah. Uh, uh, provide, I wouldn't say anything uh, detrimental about the Carlo people. It's as simple as that. If I was in Kerry now, I'd uh, probably tell jokes about the Dublin people. If I was in Galway, I'd tell jokes about... <laughs> Maybe about the Cork people and things like that. It's if the gag is good, it uh, it doesn't make any di- the place names don't make any difference, providing that it's not detrimental to the particular venue you're in. Providing you switch them around, <laughs> just switch them around and na- the place names. That's all it is. Nothing further to do than that. That show now, would you say that was a very typical show? The audience to me seemed to be an audience of mainly of young couples. Did you gear your material to that particular audience? No, I, I don't gear uh, a particular show to a particular audience, not unless I know that they're all the same in, for instance, a stag show, then I would definitely gear my show to that. But when you go to a cabaret venue in Dublin, or even in the country, they're not all young couples. There are some mammies and daddies there as well, and it wouldn't do just to please the mammies and daddies and then the other people to be given out, or vice versa. So what I do when I I try and give a variation of everything. For instance, I can I do a song and dance. I tap dance as well, and that sort of brings a bit of nostalgia back to the to the people who remember the old time music hall and things like that. And then I update a few monologues. Um, I sing a few old time songs. I do a bit of mime uh, where I dress up as a girl and a Spanish and all this. So, so I give a complete variation, and and the gags themselves are to help or to um, sort of please the different people that are in the audience. I don't gear my show particularly for any particular part of the house. They must all like it because, as you know, when an audience are just sitting there, they every one of them seems to have their own troubles. So they just sit back and they're saying, OK, now this guy, make me laugh. And so it's going to take us 10 or 15 minutes, you know, even for to get them on your side. And if they don't laugh at all, well, then they just don't want to laugh, even if you had Bob Hope or my very good friend Hal Roach or any of them up there. They just won't laugh. But if I can please 90% of the 
of the audience that of the cabaret where I am, then I say to myself, well, I've achieved something. How much preparation went into that particular show? Because you had to hold your audience for almost 45 minutes. Mm. Well, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. I, first of all, when I'm in my studio, my office at home, I prepare. I look back the file and I see what sort of uh, material I've used on the previous visit to that particular venue. So I make sure and I don't repeat myself the second time when I go there, maybe two or three months hence, you know. And so I sit down and I write and I just get me paper and I have so many gags on file, I'm able to, to look them up and I put a different show on. And I just write words down. That's all I do. Little what sort of words would you write? Well, if I was doing, if I said, now, right, tonight we'll do a Kerryman routine, you know, maybe in the Kerry routine, I just maybe just write a cross on a piece of paper. And uh, to me, that gag would mean that the guy, the Kerryman, he came up to Dublin doing the stations of the cross. And that's why the cross is there. And, of course, he's doing them backwards. He starts at the last one first. And he's halfway around, and the priest comes over. He says, my good man, he says, you know you're doing the stations of the cross backwards. And, of course, the guy said, good God, he said, I was wondering how your man was getting better. <laughs> so just by writing a cross, that will tell me what that gag is. You also write numbers. You wrote 80, 81. What significance is that? Yes, uh, we were going down in the car, and I, I, this uh, girl, uh, she said she liked me car. I said, yes, I've done 80 in this. She said, did you? I said, yes, you'll be the 81st. So that's where the 81, <laughs> 80 and 81 comes in. For instance, uh, I could just write pig down, uh, and uh, I'd remember that the gag was uh, one of the ones that I tell when I'm in my car. Your cabaret schedule is a, a very crowded one. What is your working week like? Time is, is, is very important. Uh, you might be on a place at nine. So I'd be there about half eight, uh, ready to go on stage at nine, and then finish about half nine, twenty to ten, in the car, ten to ten, got to appear at another place at ten past ten, till about twenty to eleven, and then the third one would probably be about a quarter past eleven. So it's go, go, go all the time. Well, it doesn't necessarily say you'd use the same gags on the same three shows, because for that type of thing, you'd have to look up... The the material that you told in those three venues and be different. So there's some nights I go out to do three different shows in different venues and I do three completely different scripts. We saw you performing before a totally stag audience and mm. this, I mean, to put it bluntly, was a very blue show. Mm. You think it's important that you do that sort of show? You, you Well, you have some people turn around and saying, you know, don't be blue. I mean, what is blue? I mean, all you do is be a little bit more suggestive. That's really what it is. They're not blue. Sure, we're all grown up. Uh, I think this myth of blue or not. There's a difference, I suppose, between blue and obscene. And that I, I'm not. I'm definitely not obscene. But if if I have to say a suggestive show, then I'll do it for to, uh, to please the, the 500 fellas that are there. What's the point of going out and taking someone else's advice and, and and pleasing that someone else and the 500 fellas show get off for God's sake because mo- I mean most of those 500 fellas are fabulous comedians in their own right so therefore you've got to be just that little bit better than than, than any so you I don't see why people say blue it's not blue it's a little bit suggestive I mean it was the sins now right they were sins years ago and they're not sins now 
So you've got to progress with the times. The gags that went in 1950, 1955, 66, this is the 80s, and you've got to live up to that. Do you find it very difficult then to go out in front of an audience of 500 fellows who are probably drinking? Mm. You, you really have to work to, to get them. Oh, you do. Oh, for heavens, you do. And uh, standing up and giving out a load of Mickey Mouse material, they're not going to listen to you. Whatever chance you have to listen to you, uh, being a stag audience and giving an odd suggestive joke now and then, you might get their attention. But it's very hard to do a stag show. It's very hard. It's one of the easiest things to do, I suppose. In my, I, I started at the bottom, and I got my training in the hard way. Although I, and it's nice when I get an invitation to do the... Uh, the Gaiety, for instance, as a guest spot, uh, or um, any theatre, well, it's a captive audience in theatre. And to me, it is so easy to stand on a stage in the Gaiety in a captive audience and do eight, ten minutes of material for the family, geared to the family. It's so easy. But you take that ten minutes and put you in a cabaret audience where, where there's drink involved. It's a different kettle of fish. Just how demanding are these cabaret audiences and how hard does a comic have to work? Hal Roach has his own views on the attitudes of audiences to stand-up comics performing in cabaret. There seems to be an apathy today when people are on in cabaret. People talk. People go to the toilet, go up and walk across the floor. I was at a cabaret the other night and I don't know how the singer was on at the time was able to cope with uh, the people walking across the room. I mean, there's no respect... But hasn't it always been like that? Don't people always talk or eat or drink while... Well, I suppose they do, but I think it's getting worse. There's a lot of, uh, you see, there's a lot of things happening today that didn't happen years ago. Uh, They're having little meals, uh, uh, you know, sort of chips and things uh, during the show. And uh, we, we as a nation in Ireland are the greatest audience perhaps in the whole world. Theatre fashion. When we go to a theatre, there's no better. But w- once we put the old bevy in front of us, the, the, the booze, we seem to get caught up in the actual uh, company of drinking and then the, the cabaret becomes secondary. And then, of course, I mean, you, you lose concentration. Now, I mean, unless I can get to people, there's no way I'm going to get over. Singers, uh, you know, re- relatively speaking, can sing to one table. But a comic has to get the room. Do you think that for a stand-up comic, perhaps the most difficult audience, then, is the cabaret audience? Oh, absolutely. Oh, there's no doubt about that at all. And I think it's a shame, because, I mean, in other places, if you go to Mass, I'm not uh, you're relating... Well, I, I am. I'm relating to a man up there trying to do a job. You don't see people walking around the church during Mass. I mean, there's a respect. Well, now, why not a respect for a comedian? Or any other artist, by the way. A respect. Americans never go to the toilet when there's a performer on. They could say, well, we have to go to the lavatory. But why don't other people have... Uh, Australians have to go to the lavatory. They sort of make sure that they go to the... And, and, and also, by the way, uh, Ireland is one of the few places, I suppose England is much the same, where they actually have service during the cabaret. Now, I know that we're not orientated to that degree, like the Las Vegases or the Renos of this world, but there has to be a certain respect for people up there who are entertaining you. You could say to me, by the way, if they were that good, they'd get their audience. But Des, that's not true to say. I mean, the only consolation I have if I do a, a cabaret and it doesn't go well from here is that I don't think Danny Kay could do any better with, 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 the, with the booze. You talked there about Americans going to the, the bathroom, as they call it, yeah. which brings us to the area of, of the blue joke. 
Yes. Uh, this is an area in which y you don't figure at all. You don't tell those stories. No. Do you think it's necessary for a comic? I don't. To tell blue stories? I don't. I don't think so. That's a personal uh, point of view because um, I have seen uh, some great uh, co comedians, uh, you know, that have everything going for them who resort to terrible blue. It's not only blue material today that's going on. There's a sick sort of uh, jokes today, but blind children... And that sort of, uh, you know, ludicrous, uh, morose uh, routines. Um, and I think the bigger the comedians are in America, the worse they are. The bluer they get. I think there's an apathy to say, oh, well, we've made our money. Who the hell cares what people think anymore? And they do the most vile material. Now, uh, at the moment, I am <clears throat> over 50. I'm 51 years old. I've been in show business 40 years. And at the moment, I would say that I'm, you know, at the sort of pinnacle of my career and there was a time when I used to do uh, a few little um, blue gags but I think some a lot of us do it out of fear I mean we panic when we're not getting over and we say we threw in that one we talk about knickers or something like that you see and of course the word knickers is funny to most people so you say knickers and you get a laugh and then there's a tendency to try and uh, you know do another one like that and another one and before you know it you've got into the routine of doing blue jokes but supposing you had a stag audience isn't it a good thing to get uh, a genuine belly laugh from an audience of, of men uh, well yes yes that, that that's a different category now if I do a stag dinner you see uh, I get notes about who's going to be there and most people I, I know them anyway but I would tell a joke, uh, like, uh, for instance, I would say, and in the audience tonight we have... Uh, I, I tell this about Junior Smurfett, by the way. <laughs> if Junior is listening, it's uh, still a gag. I say that he is a man who was never caught doing anything that was illicit, immoral or unsavoury. I said he's done them all, but he's never caught anything. <laughs> Type of joke, you see. Now, that's not a blue. It is just slightly suggestive, and it's taken in the best. You see, I think myself, um, if people know you... And, and here's another thing, by the way. Now, here's another thing, Des. I don't think people should take comedians literally. Hal Roach says he doesn't like blue jokes, but Sil Fox tells them. And these are gags, blue, suggestive, or just honestly vulgar, you can put your own label on them, that he tells to his audiences most nights of the week. Well, since you saw me last, I've done a lot of cabaret. I've done cabaret in Russia. And as you know, in Russia, everything ends in off. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Done cabaret in the Shetland Islands and I brought back a pony. Done cabaret in the Canary Islands and I brought back a canary. Done cabaret in the Virgin Islands, got nothing. <laughs> Done cabaret in Africa. I must tell you something about Africa. You know, over there, if they catch you robbing in the supermarkets, they cut your hands off. And if they catch you playing football in the streets, they cut your feet off. You don't see many flashers over there. <laughs> Fella got a duck over there and he brought it into the pictures. And you're not allowed to bring any ducks or anything into the pictures in Africa. And he got the duck and he put it down his trousers. And he's sitting looking at the film. And the duck starts moving its head and starts moving and moving and moving. <laughs> and its head appears. And there's two women looking at me once. She's saying, Macy, Macy, we took the fella beside me. <laughs> she might say, yeah, he's all right. She, when you see him one, you see him all. <laughs> the one says, I know she, but this one's eating me crisps. 
Not quite the joke, perhaps, you tell to your maiden aunt, and certainly not the authentic Africa, where ladies are known as Maisie and talk with a Dublin accent, but it's what Sil Fox's audiences seem to enjoy. Offstage, is he the jokey extrovert he appears to be to his cabaret audiences? I suppose I'm always working, really. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, I suppose, if I'm with people, they expect me to be funny, and, and if I'm not funny, there's something wrong with me. Uh, and I don't, I'm not a funny person off stage. In fact, I'm the exact opposite. I switch on. It's as simple as that. I switch on and I switch off. And uh, that's how when people invite me to parties I've been invited and I don't go, for the simple reason, they probably just expect me to switch back on again when I go to these places. So I don't. I'm a very, very introvert off stage and extrovert on stage. Silfox has been a professional comic now for six years. But for some years, he'd learned his trade as a comic, as an amateur performer, while working by day in the tailoring business. Eventually, he made the decision to give up his day job. After a couple of years, I decided I'd have a go and go professional. And I went home one night and I said to the wife and my three kids, I said, uh, I'm going to have a go. Because I started in the cabaret business when everyone else was starting. And uh, I did see a future there. And I've been proven right. You know, there was a great future there. I mean, um, Brendan Grace, for instance, and myself were in the same place together. I think we got £2 each. And that was a that was top money then, you know. But even if we didn't get money, we maybe some fellow would send you over a lemonade or something. Just to be on the stage, I felt great. Was it a very big decision for you to make, to turn professional? No, it wasn't, because I had no other choice. Well, I am married to the best wife in Ireland. You're the ones in Birmingham. <laughs> a few jars of me. New Year's Eve. She opens the door. She says, there you are, you're drunk. I said, yeah, <laughs> you're ugly. <laughs> she, you're drunk? I said, I know, but I'll be sober in the morning. She said, I'll have you know, beauty ran in my family. I said, God, it must have galloped past you. <laughs> That's how one tends to think of comedians' wives. And Sil Fox, like most other comics, tells stories about wives and mothers-in-law. But Laura, his wife in real life, seldom goes to see his shows. Yet she accepted his decision six years ago to give up his tailoring job to become a professional comic. By that time, I suppose, he was earning enough in one or two days that... But he was earning for a week and the other thing, and that was more or less his reason for it. And then he was out so late at night, he was coming in, and in no way was he able to go out so early in the morning time. And as a matter of fact, one friend of his said to me one night, he had to uh, drive out to Malahide, and Paddy said, you know, he said he'll be killed some of these time mornings coming out to Malahide because he said he can't see the road, he's that tired after being out late. So when he decided on it, he said, well, he said, sure, I can always go back to cutting. And that was really the way he gave it up, you know, that if it didn't work, that he could still go back once he had a trade. So, I don't know, I don't think I mind at the time. Well, what about how many children had he, had he got to support? At that time we had three. We had um, two boys and a girl. And, um, well, she wasn't a young baby at that time, she was about um, five. So, like, if I had to, I could have went back to work as well. So I didn't really mind that much. It wasn't like worrying about somebody having to mind a baby for you. 
But you knew that the the world of entertainment is a very insecure world. Oh, might, even um, still if is. you're successful today, you may not be tomorrow. Oh yes, it's only a nine days wonder more or less. You know, you're here today and gone tomorrow. I still said you're only as good as your next joke, and that's definitely the truest word you ever said. But, um, I suppose it's like every job. There's no job really 100% secure. But do you ever think about the insecurity? Yes, I do. I worry about it too. I really do, but um, what can you do? Mightn't live to see it. And that's, to me, I, like, I think that's the best way of looking at it. Say, well, right, enjoy what you have when you have it. And if you haven't got it, well, then to hell with it. Do you think he's more fulfilled now as an entertainer than if he had stayed in the tailoring business? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, that time he was a frustrated comedian, I suppose, you know, he was trying to work and he was trying to... He was completely doing two jobs which he just wasn't capable. I don't think anybody really is capable of giving their whole attention to two of them. You know, it started as a hobby and then the hobby took over and that was... Although up to the time he left work, he was a good worker. That's one thing. He never shirked hard work. That's why I don't think I worried really when he said he was giving it up because I knew that if he had to, he would eventually go back, you know. Do you ever tell him that perhaps he's giving too much of himself to the business? Oh, yes, but you'd be wasting your time telling him that. Tell that to any man and he'd tell you the same thing. Well, I mean, there's no life with it, really. There's definitely, there's no life whatsoever. You've got no social life because you can't make an appointment to see somebody tonight or next week and say, well, right, we'll have a night out. Turns around, the phone rings and says, well, I'm working tomorrow night, so what do you do? So, you know, that part of it is, you know, it takes a lot to make up for that. You have to have a lot of compensations. We went into town today and he said, what's that shop? I never saw that before, Marks and Spencers. Oh, I just couldn't believe it. That'll tell you how long ago since he really walked down Henry Street. The life of a comic is a lonely one. To Silfox, the members of his family are important. Helping out during his cabaret nights Whenever the audience join in during what they call crazy nights, is his brother, Tommy. Well, the earliest recollection I have of Syl being funny was the time that he did a show for St. Joseph's Catholic, uh, the Boys' Brigade, and it was a minstrel show, and he was only six, and I even remember the song that he sang, and he stopped the show, and he was only six. And uh, since then, I think he must have been bitten by the bug, because he never gave up since... Was that his first uh, public appearance, as it were? Uh, that was his first public appearance, and that's not bad when you're six. <laughs> and uh, then he was always then an extrovert after that. We, when he was palling around all his pals, instead of going to someone else's house, they all congregated up knocking for sale. So he was always very popular. W- was it hard growing up? Were there difficult times? Oh, they were difficult times. My mother was left with uh, five children and my dad died when he was only about 33. So we were all going to school and we knew what it was to be hungry. We definitely did. Um, we used to get the Herald Booth on boots in school and the free books. And Of course, we were the same as thousands of others at them times. I don't think we were any much different, but thank God, thanks to my mother, she kept us on the right road and kept us all together. Uh, I think that would bring me to where I still got some of his humour as well. Um, My mother was a great lover of comedians and the radio, and when 
years ago when Vic Oliver or Ted Ray or Tommy Trend or any of those people to come on we'd have to be very quiet and listen so I think whether he knew it or whether he didn't he was being brainwashed even at an early age to be a comedian Did he talk to you um, in his earlier years about becoming a full time entertainer comedian? Uh, no, no not in his earlier years but when he did start to get a couple of gigs in the cabaret then he really got bitten away again and there was nothing but satisfying then to be a full time comic but anywhere that he got, he got it on his own now. Uh, he banged at doors. And at that time, there was a closed shop. There was no doubt about it. You had to be in a certain clique and if you weren't in it. So he was on the periphery all the time. But now, thank God, he's kind of being recognised for his talents. I was often wondering that if you're looking at television and you see uh, a show and then you see the captions come up at the end and there's eight or ten scriptwriters... And they're still maybe mediocre, some of them. And he does it all on his own. And he does do it all on his own. Family shows, priest shows, shows for nuns, shows for senior citizens, stag parties and even hunt balls, he says. And if you think that a career as a comedian is insecure or even unlikely, then nothing was more unlikely than Silfox's reasons for becoming a professional entertainer. I was more or less in the ladies' hats and uh, the Pope, I think, made a declaration or something like that that uh, you didn't have to wear a hat at Mass. Do you remember that? Well, that was true. And that that killed their trade. Because all the ladies, you know, always wore hats going to Mass. But then when this came through, they didn't. So it it knocked... I was going to say the... the uh, <laughs> but it knocked the whole lot out of the, uh, the business. So the, the hat trade, the millinery trade, started going down and down. So that wasn't we weren't as busy as we were, so I didn't see much future in it. And I was, I was earning a few bob, and uh, said to myself, "Well, should I, if I make me wages anyway, I've nothing to lose." So I just decided to have a go. Do you know it was so cold in our house tonight that when I opened my wardrobe door, there was my suit with me overcoat on it. <laughs> Dark clouds away. 